evening. Welcome to Tuesday Evening Chapel. This is the first chapel of the spring term. Can you believe it's here already? I want us to begin by taking care of a couple of things. First, um, anybody here who, this is your first chapel as an NBC student, would you mind embarrassing yourself? Raise your hand. We want to welcome you. Second, it is our privilege to have uh, Dr. Herbert McGonigal here as our Preacher of the Year. Dr. Sanders is going to introduce him in a little bit. Uh, it's special chapel services this week. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Holy God, accept our praise. Holy God, accept our hearts. Holy God, accept our lives. It's all we have to offer you. We give you praise. We give you thanks for the changes. We give you thanks for your calling. We give you thanks for the challenges. We give you thanks for your enablement, for your adequacy. We give you thanks for your holiness. God in three persons, we give you praise. We ask that you would accept what we offer you. We, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear what you have for us so that we can be people who reflect your holiness. We pray make it so. Amen. You may be seated. Before I introduce Dr. McGonigal, there are a couple things I would like to mention to you. Uh, next week on uh, Friday evening, that's not Friday of this week, but of next week, Steve Adams and his sons will be here in a Friday night concert beginning at 7 o'clock. Steve Adams is a, a songwriter who has written uh, Till the Storm Passes By, uh, Amazing uh, Grace, How Sweet the Sound, and it's, not, it's his Amazing Grace, it's a beautiful song. And he and his sons are marvelous musicians, and really it's a tribute concert that they wanted to give in honor of this president and my retirement and I want you to be here and share the event. Following the event, uh, we feel like that as students, you no doubt would like to celebrate with us the fact that we now have accreditation from uh, North Central and the Higher Learning Commission. And so we'll have a reception over in the Student Center on Friday night of next week so that we can have a time of celebration, and I know you look forward to that. As we anticipate, uh, my retirement and the election of a new president, we really want God's will for the future of this college. I believe that this is a holy hill. I believe that God set this place apart for a special mission. And uh, I don't have any suggestions as to what should happen. I just want God to have his way. And I think the best way for us to find the mind of God is on our knees. And so uh, for the next three Fridays, uh, beginning uh, this week, we will have a prayer time here in the chapel at noon, and I want to call it a prayer and fast time. Because in truth, my wife and I found that every crisis we've ever, fast, ever faced, it's through fasting and prayer that we have found the mind of God. And so those of you who would like to join us at noon on Friday for the next three Fridays in anticipation of the board meeting, the last of this month, we would invite you to meet here at noon on Friday or after you come out of class. 
I have professors and uh, people from the college who will be doing uh, Bible readings, and uh, it, will, it will just simply be a time that you just kneel and pray as, you want, as long as you want to pray Friday noon the next three weeks. And thanks for remembering that. Well, what an honor it is for us to come to this week for our Preacher of the Year. I always believe this is a high point on our campus. It was set aside by the family of T.W. Willingham, one of the great preachers of our church. And I had really hoped that Albert and Gloria could be here with us for this series, and they wanted to be. They had planned on it, but uh, Gloria had to have surgery on uh, her knees, and was, they were unable to make the trip. Uh, they are, Albert is one of the children of uh, Dr. Willingham. And uh, they really wanted to be here because of Dr. McGonigal being here and, and being a part of this series. So we honor Dr. Willingham and the family who have set this lectureship up. And we couldn't have a finer lecture than uh, Dr. Herbert McGonigal, former president of the uh, Nazarene Theological College in Manchester, Manchester England, uh, and now a lecturer uh, regularly every week at Manchester. When he's not doing that, he literally travels the world as a, as a lecturer on Wesley thinking and, uh, and uh, the holiness doctrine that is so important to us. We're honored to have him as he's here in the country, uh, and I think that we're in league with the best because he has been at Asbury for a week, he's been at Olivet for a week, and now he's here with us for a week. Uh, I'd like to mention that Dr. McGonigal has written a number of books which are mentioned in your, in your program that gives a series of sermons that will be preached this week. I wanted to call your attention to his most recent book called Sufficient Saving Grace. My wife and I have both read this. This is a high mark in, the develop in Wesley's development of the Armenian theology that we are believers in. And so if you haven't read this book or if you don't have it in your library, you really ought to get it. We've read it from cover to cover, and we thank you, Dr. McGonigal, for taking the time to do this for the, the church and for the world. He is uh, respected in the Methodist community as a scholar. He is, uh, he is sort of the tour guide uh, at Epworth. If you go to England and you want to follow the steps of Wesley, there's no one better able to give you that. In fact, the Wesley Society has made him an official, or the Epworth Society made him official member of the board because he, he knows more, they said he knows more about it than they do. So uh, we have a real outstanding opportunity to hear the best. Dr. Herbert McGonigal, we are so delighted to have you here. And I, I'd just like to not only introduce you, but I'd like to introduce men and women who have been called by God. They're not here by accident, but God's spoken to their heart, and they're here to hear you tonight. God bless you. Dr. Sanders, thank you for that very warm welcome. And thank you, in fact, for inviting me in the first place. Uh, maybe you took something of a risk. How large the risk was will have to be determined when, when these couple of days together are over. But I have to say to you and to all of you who are gathered here this evening that this, these days of coming to the Bible College, I have looked forward with such great anticipation. Many years ago, Tom Mitchell was a colleague and a teacher. And the man who first brought me west was Ross Hislip, a name that many of you knew so well. I was on this campus maybe 15 years ago for half a day. 
and uh, I didn't see very much of them. Folks, it is a very, very great honor to be here, and especially to have my name associated with Dr. Willingham. Well, that is something indeed. I, didn't, I hadn't known the connection when you first invited me. I knew, of course, who Dr. Willingham was and his great ministry and right reputation as a preacher of the Word of God. Uh, for the last 30 years, I've been working in our college in Manchester. I was a pastor before that. But it was to this ministry of proclaiming the Word of God that I was called. I have loved every day of 30 years at our college, and I still love it. But brothers and sisters, the greatest calling in the world is to have a share in proclaiming the everlasting gospel. That is a great and glorious call, and above it, I believe, there is nothing greater than to be called of God and recognized by His church and to have a place of ministry. And I come to you for these couple of days with the name, with the words and the names of two great English Methodist preachers of a former generation ringing in my ears. The first is Samuel Chadwick. Chadwick had a great ministry on the Methodist circuit, and then he opened Cliff College near Sheffield for the training of evangelists for the English Methodist Church. Chadwick was a great Methodist and a great holiness preacher. Some of you will remember his books, The Path of Prayer and The Way to Pentecost. Chadwick often said, God called me to preach. I would rather pay to preach than be paid not to preach. The other Methodist was the great William Edwin Sangster. When Sangster was at the height of his ministry in London, he was preaching to the largest congregation of any denomination in the British Isles. And on one occasion, a gathering of ministers and pastors invited Sangster to come and speak to them on the subject of preaching. They could hardly have asked anybody better qualified to speak on preaching than the man who had raised the largest congregation in the British Isles. But perhaps those preachers who gathered were not quite ready for Sangster's opening and introduction. He said, colleagues, too many of us as preachers have an infinite capacity for dehydration which being translated means many of us are too boring. <laughs> now, brothers and sisters, whatever else we do, may the good Lord deliver us. It is a tragedy if the greatest news in the world ever come across in a boring way. You and I are called of God to, de to proclaim the world's only good news. And whatever gifts the good Lord has given us, may he deliver us from being boring. That is the most destructive thing that can happen to the gospel. And by the Lord's good grace, I will try and make sure that at least everybody stays awake in, uh, in these four. I have very good sight. And I can see people who nod on the back seat and I'll pick you out and I'll do my best to wake you up. 
Folks, the most important thing we do in public worship is to read and hear Holy Scripture. Whatever else you put in your service, don't leave out Scripture. I go to services sometimes these days and the word of the Lord is not read and that is a great, great failure. How can we have time for all the rest that takes place and not have time to hear the word? If you want to follow in your own Bible, fairly short reading from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 beginning at verse 7. In the first six verses, Paul has been speaking personally of the great thing that had happened in his life, his upbringing as a Pharisee. Now, verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And as always, we give to the Lord thanks for his word. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. In the year that your president was first elected, during that first year, the first lady, Laura Bush, was interviewed by Time magazine. Very interesting interview. And she was asked the inevitable question. Please tell us, what is a typical day in the life of your husband and yourself? Mrs. Mrs. Bush began by saying, well, my husband and I rise early. We pray together. We read the scriptures, and then my husband reads from my utmost for his highest. And Laura Bush added no explanation that this has been for so long the book by Oswald Chambers, the Scottish holiness writer, that since it was published at a ratio of three to one has outsold every other book of daily readings in your country or mine. And immediately Time magazine published the interview. I read that Christian radio stations in this country 
and religious bookshops were inundated with inquiries. What is the book that the president and Laura Bush read every morning together? We want to find this book. And one of my friends who is very technically minded said, you know, he said, before that uh, interview came out, my utmost for as highest was way down below the number of thousand on Google. But after that, it jumped to the top 300, among the top 300. My utmost for his highest. Friends, it seems to me that is exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. My utmost for God's best. I am giving myself entirely in order that I may know him. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. In the verses we didn't read, Paul reminds us of the things he had lived for so passionately and would in fact gladly have died for. He talks about his ancestry. He was so proud to belong to the tribe of Benjamin. You know, I used to wonder at that because Benjamin was the smallest of the 12 tribes. So why would someone boast, you know, of belonging to the smallest? We, you know, when we boast, we like to think we belong to something big. Benjamin was the smallest. Had we asked the apostle, he would have reminded us that when the kingdom split in the days of Rehoboam, one tribe only remained loyal to the house of David. And that, of course, was the tribe of Benjamin. The capital city, Jerusalem, stood in the territory of Benjamin. And he would have said, when I was born, my parents had the very good sense to name me after Israel's first king. A Benjamite? Saul. So he had been proud to be a Benjamite. He says, I am a I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, by which he meant, I can trace my ancestry clear back to Abraham. There is not one drop of foreign blood in my veins. He was proud of his ancestry. But you know, folks, he learned that no matter how good our ancestry is, ancestry is not salvation. Ancestry will not save you. He was proud of his orthodoxy. He said, touching the righteousness which is in the law, meaning in externals, I was blameless. If you and I had known Saul of Tarsus, there was nothing in his conduct we could have found fault with. He strictly observed his religion outwardly. He was righteous and moral. He was proud of his zeal. He said, I was a persecutor of the church. And then, he says, came the great renunciation. Listen to this. What things were gained to me, I now count all of them but loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. There came, friends, in his life the great day of capitulation on the Damascus Road, where seeing the glory 
of the risen, ascended Lord. All the barriers were broken down. All the divisions fell away. And he recognized that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel. What? Who are you, Lord, and what will you have me to do? This great and wonderful Christian life began in renunciation. In the great letter to the Hebrews, where the apostle is outlining all of those worthy men and women, the longest entry is given to Moses. The opening sentence is very significant. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden by his parents. You and I know the story, and we know why. So when he was born, his parents did something for him. They took measure to try and save their lovely baby boy from the murderous intention of the Egyptians. He had something done for him. Then we read, when he grew up to maturity, the first thing he did for himself, the word is refused. That's what it says in the text. By faith, Moses, when he had come to maturity, refused. Refused what? Refused to be identified as an Egyptian. Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He said, I may look like an Egyptian. I may dress like an Egyptian. I may speak like an Egyptian. And I may have an Egyptian education, but I am not an Egyptian. I am an Israelite. I belong to a slave people. See, the first thing he did was he refused. You know, folks, there are some of us, and we are not going to make very much progress in the Christian life until we learn to say no to some things. Not just the things that are wrong. The Holy Spirit will tell us from the day we are saved to do that. But sometimes we have to make choices between the better and the best. There has to come a place in our lives of renunciation of the lesser things in order that we might seek the best. It began with renunciation. It moved on to revelation. He says, I count all things but loss." For the excellence of the knowledge, and here it is, Christ Jesus, my Lord. And in the, that wonderful phrase, Christ Jesus, my Lord, is summed up the Apostles' Creed. This is what Paul discovered. This is to whom he belongs. Christ, Messiah, Jesus, my Lord. And in those four words, we have his entire spiritual biography. Christ, Jesus, my Lord. It comes up in a number of places in the letters. For example, he says to the Corinthians in the second letter, what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. For the God who said, let light shine in the darkness, is the God who has shone into our hearts 
And here comes one of Paul's great passages. See what he's doing? He's linking creation with salvation. The God who spoke in creation is the God who has shone his light into our darkened heart to give, oh, this great phrase, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, think about that. For this man, an Israelite, a Hebrew, a Pharisee, the unbelievable revelation. The God whom he had sought so strenuously, he discovered where he least expected. He discovered the God of his fathers, the God of creation, in the face of Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul discovered, as every man and woman discovered, that in the face of Jesus, and in the face of Jesus only, we find God. When we have looked into the face of our Lord, we will never, ever, ever be the same men and women again. It is a life-transforming experience. I love the word he uses in Colossians, uh, sorry, Galatians 1. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb to reveal his son in me. And in the light of that revelation, all the other things, he says, became as rubbish. Rubbish compared to the glory of Jesus. The things that were so important. Now comes this bit what we're calling his aspiration. That I may know him. It was of these words that that same Dr. Sangster that I quoted said, this is St. Paul's magnificent obsession. Oh, what a phrase. A magnificent obsession. You and I have met people with obsessions, haven't we? Some of them more worthy than others. Here's a man with one all-absorbing obsession. That I may know him. And friends, this becomes the mark. This becomes the distinguishing mark of every Christian who is following after Jesus. To know him is to want to know him more. Just think for a moment. When Paul wrote these words, wasn't he already a Christian? And of course he was. Wasn't he already an apostle? Yes, he was. Wasn't he already in the work of the ministry? Yes, he was. All of that. But you see, Paul puts his finger on the very, very thing that is so precious and so important. To know Jesus is to want to know him more and more and more. That I may know him. He doesn't mean I don't know him, but I want to know him. No, 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 no. It means I know him, 
and I long to know him more and more and more. All of you here tonight are familiar with the name of our Prime Minister, uh, Tony Blair. I know a little bit about Mr. Blair. I know where he was born. I know when he was born. I know where he went to school. I know what he read when he went up to Oxford. I know when he entered politics. And I remember when he was elected our Prime Minister. I know a bit about Tony Blair. But I don't know Mr. Blair. There's a world, I've never met him. You know, there's a world of difference between knowing about somebody and actually knowing them. I dare say that what's true in my country is true in yours. There are many people in Britain who know about Jesus. But sadly, they don't know him. When John and Charles Wesley set sail on the Simmons in October 1735 to come to Georgia in this country, they were on board a few days when they discovered 26 German people, even, even German-speaking evangelicals, on their, also on their way to Georgia, Moravians. And John Wesley was so impressed with the conduct of these people that he says he learned German in order to converse with them. He also ended up translating at least 30 German hymns into English, so he learned the language very well. He was so impressed with the conduct and the conversation and the behavior of these godly people, especially during a storm. Everyone else was screaming, thinking the ship was going down. The Moravians had just begun their evening service and they sat in a corner singing their German hymns and uh, praying together. And Wesley was so impressed. When he arrived in Georgia, he moved house in Georgia to live close to the Moravians, to know them better. And he tells us that one day he had a, a conversation with their leader, a man called Gottlieb August Spangenberg. That would just have to be German, wouldn't it? And uh, he began, you know, sort of a kind of a Nicodemus by night approach, asking the German, you know, who are you and what's your background and why are you in America? He wasn't prepared for Spangenberg's answer, who said, Mr. Wesley, do you know Jesus Christ? No, straight to the point. Mr. Wesley, do you know Jesus Christ? And the man who was an ordained minister of the Church of England had been teaching and lecturing for more than 10 years at Oxford, was a missionary to the American Indians and the white settlers, was honest enough to admit he didn't know how to answer the question. He knew about Jesus. But in answer to the direct question, he couldn't say that he knew. See, a world of difference between knowing about and knowing. To be a Christian is to know Jesus Christ as Lord in personal experience. Christ Jesus, my Lord. But he doesn't only want to know the person. He also says he wants to know the power the power of his resurrection. 
You'll find mentions of this throughout his letters. Paul makes it very clear that he knows that when the Father raised the Son from the dead on that first Easter Sunday, resurrection power was released. See, Paul's not talking about the fact of the resurrection. He hasn't a question about that. Paul is absolutely convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead, and in the great words he writes to the Romans, he lives forever in the power of an endless life. It's not the fact of the resurrection. It is the power of the resurrection. And Paul says, I want to know him, and I want to know in my life. I want to know in my ministry the power of the resurrection enabling me to live in that victorious light and enabling me to minister and proclaim and preach and travel in God's power. There is not one of us here tonight, I am certain, who would deny. And I'm not going to use the phrase, the church's greatest need. I mean, that's been so hackneyed. <laughs> you could probably add many things there. But I think we're agreed tonight that the church of God in general and our own beloved church in particular, we need to discover again in our lives, in our ministries, the power of the resurrection. The power that changes situations. The power that enables us to minister and live and witness effectively and joyously in our dear Lord's name. The power of the resurrection. When I was a student at the college, well, it was then in Scotland, but I was a student in the college where I now teach, I came home during that first summer to the farm where I had grown up. It was a late August evening, and I had gone up to the, the highest field on the farm to meet one of my neighbors. His farm and ours ran adjacent to each other. And while I had been away at college that year, something had happened in that part of the country for the first time, electrical power. You'll think that's strange. I grew up in a home where there was no electrical power, at least until that year. And during the year I was away, the electricity board had come in, and right across the country, they had put up these great wooden poles, strung the cables, and the electrical power was running through the wires. That late August evening, I was standing with my neighbor uh, near one of these poles. And on that late summer evening, they, you could hear the humming of the current as it surged its way through the wires. And on the pole, beside where we were standing, there was a little warning notice about three by three. It was stamped into a little bit of aluminum. That's aluminum to you. And it warned us, it warned us that something like 33,000 volts of electric power 
were surging through those wires. 33,000 volts. Enough with transformers to light up a small town. An hour later, I was in my neighbor's house and it was lit with oil lamps. In fact, the wires almost went over his chimney. He had 33,000 volts of electric power passing 15 feet above his roof. But he only had lamplight in his home. Well, the reason's very simple. You've worked it out already. He wasn't connected. He wasn't linked up. He could have asked and the engineers would have come, put in a transformer, stepped down the current. He could have had current in every room. He had none because he wasn't connected. And you know, it's possible for some of us to have grown up in the church, to have heard all there is to hear. We've heard all the preaching. We have been to the camp meetings. We have heard, we've been to all the... We, we know the doctrine. But somehow, folks, some of us have never been connected. We've never been linked up. We've never discovered the power of the resurrection. We've never discovered the joy of knowing, loving, serving Jesus in resurrection power. And if we go to holiness conventions until the day we die, nothing will change until we get connected up, linked up to our risen Lord, that into my little life and your little life, can come the power that he made available by his resurrection from the dead. In the great second part of Ephesians 1, Paul opens the chapter with a great doxology. Yeah, he puts the doxology at the very beginning of the letter. And the second half of the chapter is a great prayer. And he ends the prayer by saying, God can do it according to the power demonstrated in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand. The power of God, says Paul, is demonstrated not only in creation, not only in Exodus, but supremely in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, folks, we are orthodox Trinitarian people, we believe we know Jesus rose from the dead. But we can know the theology, but know nothing of the power of the resurrection. And so some people are still held by old habits and old sins and old things that have never been broken in their lives because they are not really connected to Jesus and resurrection power. He wanted to know the person. He wanted to know the power. Finally, look at the text again. He wanted to know this amazing phrase, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What is Paul saying? He is saying, I know 
that God fulfilled his purpose to save the world in sending his son to die on the cross. A scandal to the Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. A crucified Lord, a crucified Messiah. But Paul says, I want to be identified with my Lord and with his cross. I'm not ashamed to own my Lord or to defend his cause. I want to be a part. I want to belong. I want to be identified. Paul says, God's saving purpose is revealed in the empty tomb and the sending of the Spirit. And he said, I, I want to be a part of that. And a crucified Messiah is not a stumbling block to me for the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of the world. To be identified with a crucified and risen Lord. And in our day, certainly in my country, and I presume in yours, there is getting less and less place and reception for the preaching of the gospel of the cross. In many places, it has been replaced with something else. I hope never in our own church, because God still saves sinners through his crucified and risen Son. I want to be identified, not ashamed, not ashamed, not ashamed. I close with one of my heroes from church history. Anybody here from a Salvation Army background? Oh, wonderful. I expected you to say hallelujah in good Salvation Army style. Even the Salvation Army has gone quiet, <laughs> as well as a lot of Nazarenes. Uh, William Booth. Now there's a man of God for you. Oh, a man who gave his life, converted and a teenager, do you know from the day that William Booth started preaching at the age of 16? His biographers say there is no record that William Booth in 60 years ever preached without someone being saved. What a record. And in the early days of the Salvation Army, they were founded in East London in 1878 with the uniform and the music came along. Do you know that nearly all the churches including the Methodism, out of which he and his wonderful wife, Catherine, came, the churches closed their doors. They didn't want to be identified with the Salvation Army. Out in the streets, challenging the drink trade, challenging child prostitution, challenging the social evils of the day while they preached the gospel. Sometime... If you ever see that famous photograph of William Booth as an old man with the army uniform and the long white beard, look very closely at the face. It's a face lined and furrowed of a man who cared, of a man who loved the loss, of a man who spent his life from the age of 16 
in being in the words of J.B. Phillips, Christ's man from head to foot. And oh, what opposition he had to face. Anyway, in 1904, on the 24th of June, the unbelievable happened. William Booth was invited to an audience with King Edward VII, the king of Great Britain and the colonies we then had, though you folks had left a long time before that, but the other colonies. Uh, the king invited William Booth, imagine that, to Buckingham Palace. Now I have to tell you that in the reign of any monarch, 99.9% .9 of Britain's population are not invited. Only a small handful are ever invited to see the monarch. But the king and the queen were admirers of William Booth. So they invited him to the palace. And they said, General, we will send a, we will send a, a royal carriage. You've seen those on television, haven't you? Those wonderful carriages drawn by four horses and the liveried rider. We'll send a carriage to fetch you. Booth said, well, thank you for the, I'll come, but I say no to the carriage because the people I serve don't travel in carriages. I'll walk. So on the day, followed by a great host of Salvationists in their Salvation Army uniform and carrying their flags and beating their drum, they all walked over London Bridge, led by the general on his way to Buckingham Palace. Now, at the gates, all the rest had to stay outside, and only William, the general, was invited in. He tells us that King Edward VII gave him a very warm welcome, asked him a lot of questions about the army, about his work, seemed really interested, and the interview was much longer than monarchs normally give. At the end, the king said, General, I would like you please to sign our autograph book. You know, the, the royal autograph book in Buckingham Palace. And Booth tells us that a servant appeared carrying a, a purple cushion, and on the cushion there was the autograph book. Another servant brought a table, and the autograph book was placed on the table, and General William Booth was handed a pen. Now, just use your imagination for a minute. Think of where it is. The king, surrounded by his courtiers, and William Booth, the man of God, in his Salvation Army uniform, standing at the table to sign the book. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you had been there, what would you have written in the book? What would you have written in that book? My wife often says to me, well, it wouldn't matter a scrap what you write because nobody could read it anyway. But uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what William Booth wrote. You see, folks, wherever he was, first and foremost, he was Christ's man. Ministering to the lost on London's Mile End or talking to the King of Britain and the Commonwealth. 
first and foremost. He was Christ's man. Not ashamed of his Lord. Not ashamed of evangelism. Not ashamed to be saving souls. This is what he wrote. Some men's ambition is fame. Some men's ambition is power. Some men's ambition is riches. My ambition is the souls of men. William Booth. Are you surprised God used him so wonderfully? Wherever he was, first and foremost, he belonged to his Lord. And like Paul, he was saying, my utmost for his highest. And I pray that always the great ambition of your life and the great ambition of my life will be to give my best to get God's best. Amen.